You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Now, as Pastor Kevin comes up, today's scripture reading comes from a number of places in the latter part of Ecclesiastes. And if you're able to stand, would you join with me in standing to hear the reading of God's word? In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight, yet you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and in evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will, will do equally well. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we get into this morning's sermon, will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the gift that we're given to gather together, to be reminded of the story that we belong to, to be reminded of what you are up to in the world, of what you've done, what you're doing, and what you've promised to do, the hope that we have. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you that we're safe with you. Our future is secure, but I thank you, especially as we're looking at this fascinating little book, that you're a God who cares about our life right now. You care about the stresses we're carrying, the anxieties, the frustration, the sadness, the heartache, the joys, that you're not far off, but you're very near. And so I pray as we, we dive into your word this morning, that my words would honor you. They would faithfully represent your word. And we know your spirit's at work. And I pray that he would do work of bringing conviction where we needed comfort, courage. Lord, we trust you. We want to trust you more. We want to live from a place of trust, knowing that you are not just great, you're also good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're almost done with our series in Ecclesiastes. And I have to be honest, when we originally planned it, we were going to spend six weeks. And then all the lead pastors from the Sojourn Churches said, you know what, let's do 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes, which 
was kind of one of those moments where we're like, that sounds amazing, and I don't know if that's such a great idea, because Ecclesiastes is such a fascinating yet strange little book. But I have to tell you, this series has been, personally for me, such a joy. It's been a gift to be able to spend so much time here. And with this week and next week being the last two weeks, what I want to do today is zoom out a little bit because we're, we're nearing the end of the series and say, okay, how do we make sense of this book as a whole? What are some of the big points that the teacher wants us to take away from this book? And because we have so many new people who've started coming around in the last couple of months, we need to back up a little bit before we can push forward, just so we're all on the same page. The, the premise of Ecclesiastes, the central theme of Ecclesiastes, is that life is what the author calls hevel. It's a Hebrew word that's translated for us oftentimes as meaningless or vanity, which aren't totally wrong, but they do kind of miss the point because the word hevel, that Hebrew word, it means smoke or vapor. And the teacher's saying, when I look at life and reality in this world as it currently stands, it's a lot like smoke that appears for a moment and then it's gone. It's fleeting, it's unpredictable, and when you try to grab hold of things, and oftentimes the things you most want to grab hold of in this world, they're elusive. And so if, if you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, this is kind of a, it's a different kind of book than other books in the Bible. It's, a, it's a very raw in how honest it is. I mean, all the books are honest, but this one's very raw and it's pretty gritty at times. But the teacher, the whole point is he wants to make us wise. He wants us to help us see how life really is so that we can respond accordingly. And what he is saying is, if you live under the sun, as we all do, then life is hevel. And there are countless verses. We, we read a couple, but Ecclesiastes 7.15, he says, in this meaningless, in this hevel-filled life of mine, I've seen both of these things. I've seen righteous perishing in their righteousness, really good people dying young, and I've seen wicked living long into their wickedness. 120 years and still going. And they're, they're evil. It's like, what is that? That's hevel. It doesn't make sense. We live in a world we didn't create, we can't control, and oftentimes we don't know what to do or how to respond. It just, the, 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 it doesn't add up. And so Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11 and 12, he says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. And this is really interesting because you can read in the Psalms where I think it's David says, you know, I've never seen the the son or the daughter of a righteous man go hungry. And the teacher here is saying, well, sometimes that happens. And sometimes the fastest people don't win the race. And sometimes the, the strongest people don't win the battle. And his point is not saying that life is a complete and total crapshoot. His point is just that life is unpredictable. And that time and chance happen to everyone. It's not always going to make sense. And he wants to teach us, he's been trying to teach us, okay, so how, if that's the way the world is, how do we navigate it with wisdom? How should we respond? And his big final conclusion, which Pastor Jonathan will teach on next week, is fear God and keep his commandments. But he offers some other ones along the way, and there are two that I want to put before you this morning. The first thing he calls us to, in light of the heaviness of this world, he calls us to be people who embrace our humanity. 
What I mean by that is we embrace our finitude, our limitations, our vulnerability. We embrace the fact that we're creatures and we are not the creator. Looking at chapter 10, verse 8, there are these, these fascinating little proverbs. He says, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Most likely what the teacher has in mind there is an ancient form of hunting. You'd be in the woods and you'd dig these big, deep pits and then you put sticks and branches and leaves over them. And so when animals would come by, they would you know, fall through and then you could capture them and you'd have dinner. But if you dug a whole bunch of them, you had to be careful. Otherwise, you're out checking your traps. You forgot you put one there and boom, the pit that you dug you yourself fell into. Next, he says, whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. And what he's talking about, in that day, walls were built by piling stones on top of each other. There wasn't mortar. There was lots of cracks and crevices. And so if you were to go poking around the wall in a place where snakes would love to hide, don't be surprised if you get bit by them. Well, next to a pretty self-explanatory, but whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. And whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Now, at one level, these proverbs are about as basic as can be. It's kind of like modern day would be, whoever chops an onion might cut their finger, right? It's, it's pretty simple. Like, what? why is he saying something that's so obvious? And this is where we have to remember that the teacher, if it's Solomon, whoever it is, they're writing to Israel, this isn't like they're posting this on the World Wide Web for anyone to read. There was a targeted audience for this book. And if you know anything about Israel, you know that they were people that God had set apart. He'd set his love upon them in a unique way. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, they got to watch God move in special ways on their behalf. They, they saw God deliver them from their slavery in Egypt. They watched him part the Red Sea, the pillar of smoke and fire, the miracles, the manna, all of that. They got to witness all of that. And so what would naturally happen, knowing that God has set his love on them in a pretty unique and special way. It led them to feel very special and probably led a number of them to feel a bit like they were the exception to the rule, that they were somehow more immune to the dangers and difficulties of life because we got God on our side. He's our God. We're his people. We don't have to worry about the things that the rest of the people in this world have to worry about. We're different. I'm not picking on the Israelites. I think this, is, uh, this mentality is not unique to them. It's something that occurs among religious people of all stripes. I think that's why religious people can become self-righteous and at times arrogant and condescending. It's that belief that we believe the right things and we know God, and so we are protected from things that the rest of the world is not protected from. It's thinking that somehow our faith is going to protect us from all of the hazards of life under the sun. And the teacher is saying, that's the way of the fool. The fool thinks that they are the exception to the rule. The wise realize that they are not the exception to the rule. The wise realize that we all share in the same humanity and we all face the same difficulties and dangers. Every single one of us who lives under the sun. Sometimes, though, this 
spiritualized hubris, we could call it. Sometimes it even manifests itself in thinking that because we know God's word and we have the theology and we know he's sovereign and we know that he has a plan, sometimes we think we actually know what the plan is. We know exactly what he's up to. We feel sure that God's kind of enabled us to understand his ways and we take it for granted that we're always going to be, be able to see his reasons for what happens. And we think that that's going to help us make sense of life under the sun. And J.I. Packer, I quoted him last week, I'll quote him again, in his book, Knowing God, he talks about this. And he talks about this kind of like spiritual naivete that we have. We read the Bible, we know it all, we understand God's good. And then he writes this, and then something very painful and inexplicable comes along. And our cheerful illusion of being in God's secret counsels is shattered. And our pride is wounded. We feel that God has slighted us. And unless at this point we repent and humble ourselves very thoroughly from our former presumption, our whole subsequent spiritual life may be blighted. Among the seven deadly sins of medieval lore was sloth, acedia, a state of hard-bitten, joyless apathy of spirit. There's a lot of it around today in Christian circles. The symptoms are personal spiritual lethargy combined with critical cynicism about the churches and supercilious resentment of other Christians' initiative and enterprise. Behind this morbid and deadening condition often lies the wounded pride of one who thought he knew all about the ways of God and providence and then was made to learn by bitter and bewildering experience that he didn't. This is what happens when we do not heed the message of Ecclesiastes. You know, he wrote that decades ago, and I, I think the cynicism and the disillusionment in the church has just increased and maybe increased exponentially over those decades. And I just can't help but wonder how much of that is because a lot of us were, were sold something when we became Christians, or maybe it was assumptions we had that if we're going to follow Jesus, life is going to be better and easier, and we're going to be protected from all sorts of things, that we're going to know the ways of God. And then we find out, like he says, in the really hard way, that God's ways are not our ways. And we kind of have this window of tolerance. God can do these things in my life and it'll hurt, but he's good and I'm going to trust him. And then something happens outside of that window. And that's the ones that really get us. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's, you didn't get the job or something. Well, that stinks. But then something happens outside the window. Your marriage crumbles. Someone you love gets a horrible diagnosis. Tragedy strikes. Maybe this happened to you recently. Maybe it happened a long time ago. And I think sometimes we over-spiritualize these things in such a way that, that then we're trying to figure out what is God doing and what is he up to and why is this happening to me? And the teacher's response is because it happens to everyone. Because that is what life under the sun is like. I love how Pastor Zach Eswine put it. He said, sometimes the things that happen to us result simply from the fact that we live under the sun. We get hurt splitting logs, not because God is against us or we didn't keep God happy or Satan kicked out our ladders out from under us, but simply because this is the way of life 
in the fallen world under the sun, no matter who we are, leader or follower, saint or sinner. And the teacher, he's calling us to wisdom. And again, if you're not familiar with this book, this can kind of be a whiplash, but he's saying, listen, if you want to be wise, recognize you're not the exception to the rule. You are immortal, subject to time and chance, just like everyone else. You are a contingent being with very real limitations. And the wise person is the one who takes this to heart. And I think this is something that's really hard for us to take to heart. I think all of the advancements in technology and everything else have made it even harder to take to heart. You know, God, at creation, he baked in a weekly reminder for us that we are humans, that we do not rule the world, that we are creatures, not the creators, the Sabbath. Six days you work, the seventh day you rest. And built into the Sabbath is this reminder that when, when you stop working one day a week and you say, you know what, I'm going to put it down, which for some of you I know sounds crazy. You're like, you want me to entrust this to people? No way. I have to maintain control at all times. But in the Sabbath, there was this notion that I'm laying it down and trusting that God who, who rules over all is going to rule over this and it's going to be okay. And the work I'm doing will probably last long beyond, if I do it well, long beyond me. I'm a steward here. And yet when you look at Americans and, and how we live and how we inhabit this world, it's like we're addicted to the work. And I can't help but wonder how much of that is tied to our addiction to control. When we want to control things. And the teacher's saying, good luck, human. Good luck, creature. Embrace your humanity. Verse 10, he says, if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. I think a lot of us are going through life, we never actually slow down, stop to sharpen the axe, tend to our own souls, rest, take a deep breath, pray. Instead, we, we think we're in control and we think that everything's contingent upon us, and so we just keep hacking at the tree with the axe and it gets duller and duller, and we get more and more discouraged. We get worn out, we get burned out, we get frustrated. And so that's where, when you first hear this first part, embrace your humanity, that might sound discouraging, but really it's an invitation to freedom. The teacher's saying, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to rule the world. You can be free when you recognize that life is confusing and hard and nobody is exempt. So embrace your humanity, because that's the path to wisdom. Now, on this path of recognizing our limits and who we are and who we're not, I think there's two ditches that we can fall in that keep us off the path of wisdom, that lead us off. One is we can fall off into this kind of the pit of anxiety where we recognize yeah, I really don't have much control over what happens. It can make you anxious and you kind of spend wondering like, when's the next bad thing that's going to happen? And if bad things happen to good and bad alike, when's it coming for me? And it can really paralyze you in a way where you're afraid to step into what's before you. The, the other ditch, though, would be the ditch of cynicism. Well, if time and chance 
happened to all, what difference does any of this make? What's it matter? It's all hevel and you check out. And the teacher, he warns against both of those things. He, he warns us against this, the air of thinking that we're not human. But he also says, but don't be anxious and don't be cynical. How do we respond when we recognize our humanity? And the way we respond, he tells us, is we learn to embrace the life before us. We learn, we learn to embrace our life as a gift. We receive it as a gift. Our title for this series is Life is Gift, Not Gain. And this is what he's getting at in chapter 11. This somewhat enigmatic uh, three verses are like Proverbs. He says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where it falls, there it will lie. Now, how does this tie into everything we just talked about? Well, I think it's helpful to, to start in verse 3 and then kind of work our way backwards. But what he is saying here is basically if clouds are full of water and they pour forth rain, the, the message there is hardships and trials and pain are inevitable. Nothing we can do to prevent them. The clouds are full of rain. The rain's going to come. And the whole thing about trees falling to the north or south or west or east, he's basically saying, and what's going to happen is going to happen. And you can't stop it. And so how should we respond? How do we live? And he says, go and ship your grain across the sea. Step into the opportunities and the responsibilities that are before you today. I want you to think about that verse. Imagine you lived 2,000 years ago. You're a farmer. You spend all year working towards the harvest. You get all of this grain. And, you know, you're living in a region filled with people farming the same stuff. And so the price there is really low. You're not going to be able to sell it and make much money. But you know if you ship it across the sea, across the Mediterranean or whatever, you can make a whole lot of money off that grain. But there's, so there's probably some excitement in harvest time, but there's also probably, what, a little bit of anxiety. Why? Well, what happened to ship two, ships 2,000 years ago? still happens sometimes today. <laughs> they sink. And so to actually make the profit, to actually steward what you've been given, you have to put it on the ship, and you got to trust and hope and pray that that ship doesn't sink. And it might sink. You don't know. And that's why the teacher says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. You might not, but you probably will. You see, what he's saying here is, yes, we are not in control, and life often doesn't make sense, but we've been given a lot. And so show up and steward what you've been given well, even though you can't predict the future. But do it wisely. He says, invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. It's like diversify. If you're going to be in the grain business, you might as well get some livestock as well, just in case something happens to one or the other. See, I think the teacher is inviting us to rethink how we understand risk. We think that some things are risky and other things are not. And the teacher is saying, when you understand that life under the sun is filled with hevel, 
Everything's risky. You driving to church here was risky. It's probably the most dangerous thing you did today. Having a child is risky. Starting a business is risky. Quitting a job you hate to take a job you love that maybe doesn't pay as much is risky. And the teacher is saying, step into the risk. You've been given a lot, and it's, yeah, it's heavy, it's fleeting, but receive it and steward it well. Get to work. Verse 4 He says, whoever watches the wind will not plant, and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. If you spend your entire life waiting for the ideal conditions, you're never actually going to capitalize on the life before you. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So he's saying there are no sure bets in this life. And God, he's good, but he oftentimes hides his ways from us. And so how do we respond? He reiterates it in verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether it's this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Teacher's saying when you recognize your, your mortality, your contingency, your creatureliness, then you look at all that you have in life. You shouldn't spend your days rehearsing potential dooms or checking out on life because it seems unfair. Instead, you should recognize what an incredible moment today is. That you have things right now in your life that you're not going to have forever. You have responsibilities and opportunities and gifts right now. And he's saying, step into it. Ship the grain across the sea now because you can. Yes, it's all going to fade one day, but not today, most likely. So get after it. Get to work. I mean, there's a bit of dead poet society carpe diem in here. Seize the day. You only get one life. What are you going to do with it? Now, it's important to remember the teacher, he's not a hedonist. He's not a nihilist. He believes in God and he fears God. This isn't simply a gather ye rosebuds while you may before you return to the dust and vanish forever kind of message. It's actually something much deeper going on. And it takes a while in Ecclesiastes to get there and to see it. But what the teacher is inviting us to is to live from a posture of trust in God. To live from a place where you recognize that God is good and his ways don't always make sense, but we're going to trust him. And the way we demonstrate our trust in him is to receive what he's given us, to enjoy it, to steward it, to be faithful, and then entrust entrust it to him. Again and again in Ecclesiastes, the teacher, I mean, the, the common refrain throughout the book is, Eat, drink, and enjoy the life God's given you. Can you eat and drink and enjoy the work before you? If you can, that's a gift from God. And that sounds strange to us. Are we to be pleasure seekers? Kind of. We're at least called to enjoy what God's given us. But we can't really enjoy it until we embrace our creatureliness, our smallness. We can't really enjoy it until we say, I'm going to trust God in the midst of all the craziness and unpredictability that's common to life under the sun. 
And I know, I know one of the challenges I feel when I'm writing the sermons, I'm like, what about sacrifice and service and discipleship and evangelism? And I'm, Absolutely. Like, this isn't in competition with that, but this is basically telling us how to walk. Those things are learning how to run. And a lot of Christians, they're just wound so tight, anxious and stressed, just white-knuckling it through life because they're so certain of what God is doing at any given moment, and they're going to, you know, by God, they're going to make sure that their assumption of what God is up to will be accomplished even if he might be doing something completely different. We're stressed, argumentative, unable to enjoy the life God's given us. I had a friend years ago, he was talking about his calling as a pastor. And he said, you know, when I was younger, I thought, like, if my calling, if God's called me to be a pastor, then I need to like hold it as tightly as I can, white knuckle the thing. He said, as I got older, I realized actually if God's called me to be a pastor, I can just hold it actually really loosely. I don't even need to have a grip on it because he's called me to it. And if he wants to take it away, he can take it away. You don't have to pry it out of my hands. I think that's a great thing, advice, not just for pastors, but for all of us. Because we know everything on earth, including ourselves, is perishable. We know we're going to lose everything eventually on this earth as it currently stands. And so we're able to enjoy and receive knowing that things are fleeting. I know that's strange to a lot of our ears. Jesus taught us these exact same things, though. It wasn't just the teacher wasn't just crazy Solomon going off in Ecclesiastes. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Not because there's nothing to worry about tomorrow. Instead, he says, but because today has enough worries of its own. Think about that for a minute. Hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Why? Because you got way too much to worry about right now. Imagine if you started worrying about that as well. Matthew 10, Jesus says, A sparrow cannot fall to the ground and die apart from the will of my Father in heaven. Which that's comforting. I take great comfort in that. But you know what reality is alongside of that? The truth is, every day sparrows fall to the ground and die. Like every day. Loss is real. Jesus isn't saying, if you trust in my heavenly father, then you're never going to die. No, what Jesus said is, if you believe in me, even though you die, you shall live. There are promises I've made about the future that one day I am going to complete my work. But until that day, it's going to be a lot of hevel. And it's not going to make a lot of sense. Right now, we live in a world where we, as the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13 says, here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. And so as we live in this perishing city, as the author talks about, wisdom means that the gains and losses, the joys and sorrows, all of those things present us with an opportunity to grow in trust in God. You know, I think oftentimes in church, we can, we can come and we can say we believe in God, but we're terrified of loss. And don't get me wrong, loss is hard. 
It's not something I look forward to. But that's why we gather. That's what we believe. That's what we sing about, is that our losses aren't final. And so whatever we get today, we can enjoy it. And yet we know that God has made us great promises about the future. Here's how one author put it. He said, in the end, we are all vulnerable, contingent, and helpless, both to protect our loved ones and ourselves. We cannot guarantee life, safety, salvation, or forgiveness for ourselves or for those we love. We can only do our best, whatever our place in life, wherever we stand, whatever our limits, whatever our shortcomings. But we do those things and trust that this is enough, that if we die at our post, honestly, doing our duty, God will do the rest. And I love this last line. Maturity depends upon accepting this with trust rather than anxiety. Maturity depends upon us accepting that life is filled with hevel. Are we going to accept that with trust and who God is and what he's promised? Or are we going to accept it with a whole bunch of anxiety? See, <laughs> the author of Ecclesiastes, he just so tells it like it is. He's like, we all know this is true. Now, I just turned 40, which I know is like the new 20, but I've got to say, like, I still kind of feel it. And I know those of you in your 60s are like, oh, you feel it now. Wait till I tell you what's coming in store. But you know, the aches and parents getting sick, friends' parents getting sick and dying. It's like more loss and pain, heartache, but also more joys that are like amazing. But even the joys, there's like a twinge of sorrow because your kids are growing up so fast, like before your eyes, sand through your hand. And, and all of these things present us with a choice. Will we anxiously try to preserve it, which is impossible? Or will we receive it as a gift from our Heavenly Father and enjoy it for what it is and steward it well? I think that's the life the, the author of Ecclesiastes is calling us to. I think it's a wise life. I think it's a life that brings us much greater peace and calm. I also think it's a beautiful life to the watching world. I think a lot about what the witness of the church is going to be 10 years from now, right now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And a lot of the, the things that worked 20 years ago that were good, and I still support them, I don't know if they're going to work as much anymore. I mean, it used to be... In a lot of context in America, you're reminding people of things they kind of already knew about God. And if you just had a couple of good apologetic books and you could, you could show them, you know, the plausibility of Christianity, that you can believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, oftentimes that was enough. But after the last 20 years, the moral failures, the churches that have collapsed, the cynicism that's just in the air we breathe, I just, I don't see that at least from my perspective, I don't see that winning a lot of people over. I think there's a deep distrust. And I think what hurts the distrust is oftentimes, Christians, we talk a big game, don't we? Like we believe in a God who rules over everything and one day is going to make everything right. And he's promised that not a hair can fall from our head without him attending to it. He is so great and he is so good and he's so for us. And yet we are so anxious and angry 
trying to control everything and freaking out. I don't think that, I think there's a, a dissonance there, but I think that if we can actually embrace what the teacher's calling us to here, to be present, to enjoy, to love, to steward, to not be anxious, I think that's a beautiful picture for the watching world. And it's a picture that demonstrates that we, we inhabit a bigger story than this story. And we trust in a God who's working all, all of the messiness of this world into something beautiful. And so we live with this ruthless trust in him, which manifests itself in an ability to enjoy what's before us, to take wise risks, to step into opportunities, and to find contentment, because we know it's all a gift. So we think about that, what, a, what could better remind us of this? This is the nature of reality than coming to the table. I mean, all the lessons are right here. Hevel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my body is going to be broken by evil men, but it's going to be done for you. And my blood is going to be poured out for you. You know, before COVID, you would come forward and we would offer to you. Now you have to kind of get your thing and open it up. But even the posture, when we come to the Lord's table, it's a posture of receiving. Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? And so when we come here, we're receiving, thank you, God, for life and breath, for friends, for work, for family, for children. Thank you more than anything that you are a God who's provided and you've made great and precious promises. So if you're here, you're a Christian, I want you, as you're taking part in this, I want to ask you a question. If you really trusted God, if you had no fear, let's put it like that. If you trusted he was good, what would you do? What's the thing that you're like waiting on? Maybe it's, conversation that you really want to have, a question you really want to ask, an opportunity that you've been thinking about stepping into and you feel like God is calling you to go after it and you're like just really hesitant fears keeping you back, what would you do if you're not afraid? And I want to tell you that the table that banishes our fears. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.